0: Hello, everybody, and thanks so much for watching this episode here at Your Revolution Los Angeles. I have a fantastic interview with someone that I'm actually a fan of here, Scott Santons. He's a board of fund for uh, humanity, editor of basicincometoday.com, columnist, you know, he does have columns there at the Huff Post, successful YouTube creator at Scott Santons' uh, channel, um, where basically uh, people can learn more about the idea of universal basic income. Um, Scott, how are you doing today? Good, good. How are you? Pretty good. Thank you. Really happy to have you on. Um, after hearing you at the, uh, the People's Convention, um, that was that was a great speech. All the stuff that you brought up, spot on. Thanks. Um, and so I have tons of questions. I've read your articles, um, you know, so <laughs> I just kind of want to jump right into it. Now, yeah. first off, when I started um, hearing about UBI, I thought, Well, that sounds like a great idea. Of course, I'd want the money. And I think a lot of people come from that. And then when somebody challenges someone that doesn't have much info, then it's easy for it to fall apart really quick. You know, so somebody says, oh, yeah, pretty money. That's all you want. You know, Mm -hmm. like how? So, so there's a lot of stuff that you said, and I kind of want to clear that up and be able to arm people with the right info, let's say. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So first off, I mean, let me just kind of start off by by saying that I've got a couple of um, quotes from you, just things that you've said that mm-hmm. impressed me. Like, first off, when you're like, hey, look, we're not talking about not left, not right, but forward. I think that's amazing. You're saying like duopoly is not a democracy, right? And um, so you have some fantastic ideas. Um, so just to start then, um, what is, what for those that may not know, what is UBI and what's your stance on it?
1: Yeah, uh, I would describe UBI as being society investing in all of its members individually with an amount of money that is fully unconditional and regularly provided for life. So this really is, and it should be seen as an investment, it should be seen as a dividend. And, you know, there are no work requirements. It goes to everyone, whether they are working or not working. It doesn't, you know, define work in any way. So it goes to unpaid workers and paid workers. And, you know, this is, this is a, I would consider it to be a human right too. And as I said in my speech, you know, this is when we're talking about, um, you know, we, we talk about the human right to live. And at the same time, we have the system where we are withholding what people need to live uh, on the conditions that they do certain things and either you know work for certain employers or jump through hoops for government assistance and these kinds of things. And this is about saying that life should be unconditional. And saying that life should be unconditional um, is not a left or a right thing.
0: Right okay completely makes sense so then um you know i guess i should say then why ubi specifically for that to answer that question or that problem i mean
1: yeah so i guess uh you know people can say oh well you know if we're going to say um grant unconditional access to resources then um instead of cash then couldn't we also do say uh universal services and you know make sure people have Food make people, you know, sure people have housing and clothing and um, all these other things, and I get that. Um, but at the same time, realistically speaking, you you can't provide that in a way that's fully universal and unconditional to everyone in the most efficient way. Um, you know, like take food for example. Like it works very efficiently for money to actually obtain food. You know, we go to our store we purchase what we want what we decide we want um based on you know this this amount of money that we have that we can make those decisions and if you try to like say you know meet that some other way we'd have to like build up some other network of like you know government food centers or something and then that would be limited to whatever the food options are there and you know you can imagine people deciding oh well that food is unhealthy so let's not put that in there this food is healthy Mm -hmm. so let's put that in there and you can sure Mm -hmm. you know that you'd have corporations going you know paying lobbyists and saying like well this food is actually should be considered good food and this should shouldn't be considered you know good food so you get into all that and it's just like a mess and the thing about money is that it is choice to decide for ourselves what it is that that we figure is most important for us um like housing is another good example too like we want to make sure that housing is a right and people can actually obtain that housing and when it comes to let's say um housing projects housing you know buildings those are usually like in specific areas of the city and is that something that we want like we we ourselves usually prefer that we get to choose where it is that we want to live. And mm-hmm. you know, even when it comes to housing vouchers, um, we don't get to use those anywhere. It's up to the landlords to determine if they're going to accept those or not. So the only right. thing that really works well to make sure anyone can live anywhere is cash. And also, of course, there's people who, let's say, would prefer to not live like in a, in a house. Maybe they would prefer to actually travel all around everywhere all the time. You know, that's okay right. to actually enable that choice too. So that's what it's really about is enabling all the creativity and all the ways that people would want to live. Cash does that in a really effective, efficient way.
0: That that makes a lot of sense. And so if we were to say, the, you know, the pursuit of freedom, then that's one way to do it. Um, so I've seen um, many, uh, you know, like I said, a couple of articles of yours that will lay it down, you know, the mathematics. And I can imagine yeah. a lot of people's, brains getting twisted while they're trying to like figure all that out so um i guess then for something like that to happen in a at a time when we can't even we could hardly get any progressive policies done or anything for the people it seems like right now our government's completely captured by you know large multinational corporations Mm -hmm. and um people tend to vote against their own interests so you know i'm just kind of curious you know how, how do we, how do we make that happen? You know, how, what, what's the process for overhauling the system to make this happen?
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's, that's always the, that's the, the million dollar question, isn't it? Is, is right. how to actually make government work for us. And so, right. You know, when it comes to, to basic income, when it comes to uh, cash, that is something we've even seen in this crisis where right when it happened, like there was a, mm very quick agreement on let's get a stimulus payment out you know and the the debate was really how much should the stimulus payment be who should it you know cover what that amount should be like for dependents and mm-hmm. or whatever and um and it, that worked great people you know got that check and you know certainly some people didn't get it that should have gotten it um mm-hmm. but for the most part people agree that that's the thing to do and even right now there's still agreement there as in you know, let's actually do a second stimulus check and then they're, you know, both sides are disagreeing on what else should be done besides that stimulus check but there's again that agreement that that second stimulus check is needed so it's interesting to see that that there, out of all the things that we disagree on on both sides that there does seem to be that mutual agreement on let's just make sure people have money. And so right. then, I think that's a very positive um, outcome of this that we we do seem mm. to recognize that together. But yeah, the trick is is how to actually make that happen in like a recurring, permanent way. And I yeah. think uh, a lot of that depends on what happens, you know, during this crisis, what happens at the election, what happens after the election, what happens next year, and um, you know, potentially if we're looking at it a at an economy that is in serious need of, of, you know, demand with, you know, people being, lots of people on being unemployed, you know, after there's perhaps another round of, of layoffs and mass unemployment and also the eviction crisis that can happen once, you know, we end the ability for people to not evict people. How many people right now are behind on their rents? How many people are behind on their mortgages and everything? It could be a real mess that we're looking at. So I think that mess opens up the opportunity to actually do this in a way that both sides can agree on.
0: Right. Right. So almost in a way, this now can be a blessing in disguise, although, you know, not at all intentional <laughs> or whatever.
1: Yeah, it should never have needed this. And uh, I also course, like to remind yeah. people too that if we, imagine if we would already had it, like if we already had right. that floor when this all happened, how different would things oh. be right now? It would just be incredibly no different. Yeah.
0: Gosh, no, yeah, I, I do wish that we had that. So then, then it sounds to me that... Um, the messaging needs to work properly, right? Um, And I'm I'm wondering then, you know, have you put any thought into that? Like what, I mean, I know it's not like you're a political strategist, but I think that, you know, you have a lot, you know, you have a full idea, you know, of what this is and how it would work. So what would probably be the right messaging for uh, politicians, uh, you know, that are looking to get elected or just, let's say like even in the media or whatever,
1: yeah so when it gets really interesting when it comes to strategy as to you know what would work best, and of course, you know, I'm thinking about that all the time, what could work best <laughs> and and I don't know the answers to that, but we can try to figure them out. Um, yeah. I think that it's important that say each representative is contacted, especially by their constituents, uh, but people with influence in their constituencies, and they're spoken to in ways that they can see the value in this. Idea um, from their particular perspectives and what's important to them. Uh, so let's mm-hmm. say, you know, a representative is very influenced by, you know, unions and union leaders or something. And in that case, I think that representative should be uh, informed about basic income as bargaining power, because I think that is one of the key ingredients of it is that, you know, people think that this is just money. Uh, But the most important element of basic income is the fact that it is unconditional. So if you do receive an amount of money that is unconditional, then you can actually say no to employers. And that really is what strike power is. You know, a strike is when you have the collective agreement that people are saying, all right, we're going to withhold our labor until our demands Mm -hmm. are met. And the trickiness of that situation, too, is you have to have a large enough strike fund that can enable you to strike long enough to actually get what the demands that you are demanding basic income says okay every person as an individual can withhold their labor until their individual demands are met so let's say mm-hmm. you know i'm not going to work for an employer for eight dollars an hour but i will work for fifteen dollars an hour um mm-hmm. and aside from that what happens is now you have that greater collective power as well so now a union can actually Strike for longer, you know, be- whereas before maybe they needed to strike a deal within two months. Now there is no limit because everyone has a basic income. So it could really be valuable to strengthening and regrowing unions in this time when unions are losing power. Uh, so mm. if unions can come to see it that way and then communicate that to their representatives, then those representatives yes. are going to be much more likely to say, oh, wow, well, okay, this is an important idea. And I'm going to get behind it because of course you are behind it and I Mm. value your support. So yeah, it's about politicians coming to understand that they will gain or lose their jobs based on this issue. Um, There are other issues that are big issues and this is and will be one of those that are growing in importance. And when they realize that, that's when the stuff happens.
0: Awesome. You know what? And, and I can see that actually being done. That's, that's a great idea because uh, as I mentioned before, you know, I am an, an, an advocate at UBI as well. And I thought, well, how exactly can you get something like that done? And one of the, or, or, or why, you know, if somebody were to ask me that didn't know. And one of the thoughts I had was saying that as we progress, um, as our technology progresses beyond labor, where the humans don't have to do the labor, um, mm-hmm. as I've, you know, read in some of your articles, um, I'm thinking that those companies should proportionately pay an amount of, of their profits that they got from automation. Um, What are your, what are your thoughts on that? Um, So it's, it's a really good
1: discussion to have as far as, you know, what is the best way to fund a basic income in general? Mm -hmm. And um, I think that, that in general, first of all, we should realize that we already are funding a lot of our basic income and we don't, We just don't see it that way because it's conditional. Hmm. So again, like what we're doing is we're providing um, cash or non-cash benefits um, and we're calling it welfare and it's going to a specific group that's means tested. And Mm -hmm. then also there's the, the, the rest of the population. And then they get a kind of means tested income support through tax credits, deductions, subsidies, expenditures all this. And so, you know, we look at something like the earned income tax credit or the standard deduction, and but we don't see it as like a kind of welfare, even though it is. What we're saying, you know, with Mm. the standard deduction Mm. is saying that that you aren't taxed on any money until you reach $12,000, you know, and then you're taxed. And so with the UBI, Mm. you know, you just say, look, instead of giving that deduction, instead of that subsidy, let's just make sure you have that visible like check and you understand that you're receiving something as a floor that's guaranteed and then everything you ran above that is taxed so you don't you no longer have those subsidies on top of it you replace those subsidies with it and when you do that then you realize well if you look at all that we're doing we do already we're funding it a ubi to a certain degree but it's like uneven it's not flat across the board mm. And it can actually be very, um, you know, it's oriented towards the top too. So, as an example of that, we spend 1.5 trillion dollars in tax expenditures every year, and 17% of that goes to the very top 1%. So you can see that, that, you know, we're let's say providing a 30,000 dollar tax subsidy for somebody's mansion, and Mm -hmm. instead of like we're not writing them a check for 30,000 dollars, we're we're reducing their tax bill by that amount. So let's so let's not do that anymore. <laughs> let's say you don't get a thirty thousand dollars subsidy for buying a mansion, and instead mm. you just get twelve thousand dollars like everybody else, and then you pay taxes like everybody else. So we could simplify the tax code, reduce all those loopholes that benefit the rich, at the same time mm. as reforming the conditional welfare system, which is also very racist in the way that it's built and functions. So you know when we have like a a um, uh, a, like TANF as one example, it's a, it's a block grant system to the states. So the federal government mm-hmm. writes a check to the states and then the states determine how they want to spend that money on those who are poor. And so the way that it works here in like Louisiana is that for every 100 families that are living in poverty that qualify for TANF, mm-hmm. only four actually are receiving it. So this is like no. a, when you're talking about like a net full of holes, then those mm-hmm. are, that's 96% filled full of holes that most of these families are falling through. And wow. it also uh, TANF has increased the uh, black, white child poverty gap by 15% as well. Um, the way that works is that there's, let's say, more conditions in states that have a disproportionate number of black Americans versus states with... A fewer number of black Americans in that state. So let's say if a wider wow. state, it's a lot easier to get benefits and there's fewer conditions and then that's works better. Uh, but if you have more conditions, then people can actually be worse off by that. So I think that we also need to acknowledge that our conditional system does need to be Made unconditional through this basic income as well, so that's just one way of looking at the, the the fact that we don't need to raise as much revenue as we think we do in order to make this right. possible. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of other ways to go about it too. You know, we could do value added tax as Andrew Yang ran on. You know, we can do a wealth tax and like Warren ran on. You know, there's a lot of different ways of going about it.
0: And what's the value added tax?
1: The value-added tax that Andrew Yang ran on is something that works very well. Um, it's something that we, as you know, we're the only OECD OECD nation that doesn't use one. Um, this is very successful around the world. Uh, it funds, you know, universal healthcare systems. It funds, you know, progressive systems all across the the world, even the Nordic nations. Um, mm-hmm. But what it is, it's like a sales tax, uh, but it's actually on every transaction. In the supply chain, um, and the way that 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 is different than a sales tax is because it's on each step along the way. Then each step is kind of policing the previous step to make sure that they <laughs> pay it. And mm-hmm. and the way that works is that kind of removes the holes in the ability to um, you know avoid paying this tax. It's like it's a very effective revenue raiser. And that's why it's used in so many other countries. So, you know, we could do that here in the U.S. too, since, you know, we don't have one. We just do a 10% tax and bam, you know, you could you could fund um, a basic income, you know, through that.
0: Right. And, you know, and then I like what you're saying, um, you know, earlier about how it's like, wait, we already have, the money is already there. Instead of it coming to us, it's basically going back to the rich in a way it sounds like that look, we could do this. Um, and, and while we're there and talking about, you know, how other countries, you know, or, or uh, throughout the world that have done it, um, I wanted to ask you about that, because I've heard that it actually is really successful either, you know, in communities or, um, you know, other countries that have attempted to try it or are doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is that true? And, you know, what are some of the best examples of it? And why do you think, um, you know, it absolutely works?
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, anyone listening to this, I recommend uh, going to my uh, Twitter account. I, I keep like a pinned tweet thread there where I just make a point of, of posting like each bit of new evidence as it as it comes in. Too, um, and so awesome. there's a lot of evidence behind it. Um, but just as a as a short summary, like there's no country mm-hmm. that has actually implemented this. You know, there's been countries sure. that have tested it. Uh, in fact, mm-hmm. the U.S. Um, would have been the first country. Uh, to implement it, and we were actually the first country to test a variant of it called, uh, you know, the negative income tax. This is so Nixon was actually he proposed a guaranteed income back in '69, and it hmm. passed the House of Representatives twice, once in '70 and once in '71. And in fact, in mm-hmm. 1971, it was HR one. So it was like the bill, the first bill in the next session, because it was mm-hmm. that considered that important. Uh, but it didn't make it through the Senate each time. But we were close and we experimented across the country. So we experimented in New Jersey, and in Gary, Indiana, we experimented in Seattle and Denver. We, um, you know, this was multi-year experiments, looking at like different amounts of basic uh, Different amounts of the income and different amounts of clawback um, uh, for the net income tax, and so we were we were close, and we did learn things, you know, from that. So um, in America, we were fixated most on the work impacts, and we found that that there was a slight reduction uh, in primary earning households. But it wasn't from people choosing to work less. What they did is actually, you were looking at the full year and what they did is people between jobs spent more time looking for the next job. And it's easy to argue that that is actually a good thing. We want people to be able to do that. It even shows that they have bargaining power. They're out there looking for, what's the job that will pay me what I want to earn based on the skills that I have and what's the job that actually utilizes my skills instead of just a job that I have to take because I have to, because I have no other choice. And so that's mm-hmm. you know, arguably a good thing. We also saw that there was um, uh, reductions in work for um, mothers of newborns. And so basically that was being utilized as paid um, maternity leave and so again that's arguably a good thing too that's not them working less it's them it's us valuing important unpaid work and then also uh kids in high school uh what they did is they stopped working in the labor market and they went back to school so they finished high school if they had dropped out you know they went to college and whereas before let's say they had to help their families earn income. Mm -hmm. So then they had to Mm -hmm. go and work instead of going to school. So again, that shows that even though they're working less, it's an investment in ourselves and future earnings and like that. So those were just some initial things from that um, uh, initial trial phase in the 70s, but we've learned a lot more since then. I would Mm -hmm. say also that uh, Alaska is the closest thing in the world to a, a functioning, uh, long-term basic income system so this is since mm-hmm. 1982 every resident of alaska has received a dividend for about one thousand to two thousand dollars on average every year and that is you know regardless of work it's rich or poor it's actually even child or adult is the same amount for everybody in alaska oh, cool. and the effects of that has been um a, a few things so we've seen that um uh, when it comes to uh, uh, one of the, what I think is one of the biggest effects is that children are born with healthier weights. So that's due to better maternal nutrition. So if, if mothers actually have enough oh. you know food, then they're able to yeah. eat better and the children are born healthier. And then that has lifelong repercussions. We see that, that if you're born underweight, it's more likely that you're gonna have more uh, health problems throughout life and you're also Less likely to, or more likely to earn less money, um, as well. So this is it's 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 something that's really important to make sure that that kids are are have healthy you know womb environments, and that's what we've seen that yeah. the dividend helps with. And also um, from Alaska as well, uh, part time employment has increased seventeen percent. One study showed, and uh, uh, it looked at full time employment too, and there was no impact there. There was a neutral effect. So there, what I mean by neutral is that some people may have chosen to work a little bit less for whatever reasons, but then at the same time, people had more money to spend, which they spent, which created more demand and more jobs, which enabled more people to get those jobs who wouldn't have either been yeah. get it otherwise. So that kind of evened out. So yeah, there's there's a lot of interesting effects. Um, and I guess uh, among all the many I could list, I would also list that you know we've seen decreases in crime um, that's been seen in Alaska. It actually the crime rate for property drops for the next couple months after the dividend goes out in Alaska, and in the Namibia UBI pilot, crime actually dropped by 42 percent, which I think you know that's amazing. Uh, health outcomes have also been shown to improve. So, the um, the town of Dalhousie in Manitoba in the 70s, uh, it was basically a citywide basic income guarantee and essentially limited poverty for five years. The result of that was that hospitalization rates decreased by 8.5%. So we can see that, you know, if we're looking at health care, um, a lot of health care, 80 to 90% depends on what's called the social determinants of health. It's not actually medical care that determines, hmm. you know, people's health outcomes. It's really, you know, your environment, your, you know, your if you're getting food, uh, food security. Uh, stress levels, um, that kind of thing. So, if we m- make sure that people have economic security, and then they can actually mm-hmm. afford what they need, and they're living less stressed lives, and they're even, you know, spending more time with friends and family, they're enjoying life more. You know, they're going to need less medical assistance. In which case, you can look at vac- uh, you can look at EBI as a social vaccine. It's about, you know, actually avoiding uh all these more expensive downstream effects by making sure that people actually uh, that we invest in people upstream so that we don't have those issues and also another bigger um another big effect that i see over and over again is entrepreneurship mm-hmm. and this is uh in the MIBI experiment um self-employment quadrupled and in the india UBI experiment um uh entrepreneurship tripled and so you see that a lot of people want to be their own boss. They want to start their own business, but maybe they lack the capital. And maybe if they have a good idea and they start up a business, there's gonna be no customers because nobody has any money. So UBI is Mm -hmm. both capital and customers, which really enables entrepreneurship in a way that you just don't see otherwise.
0: Wow, so it really sounds like a no-brainer, honestly. And a lot of stuff that I hear from people that um disagree with UBI or I don't, you know, or at least just um just like dismiss it out of hand. Mm-hmm. They'll say stuff like, well, you know, our capitalist system is is the one that strikes in you know, innovativeness, entrepreneurship, so on and so forth. Um, but what you're saying right here completely makes sense that it will actually and it has proven to do so to you know to have more innovation as a result um also to um i was just thinking about the other day when i was at um you know drive-through getting food and the lady that that helped me out she's pregnant with a mask i'm thinking right in the middle of a pandemic she has to work at you know a fast food restaurant making probably ten dollars or whatever it is that's like that's terrible. There should be no reason for that. So, you know, like you're saying, you know, hey, if we had this, um, if we had the UBI in place, then, you know, because, I mean, she'll be able to take care of the kid at home. There's no reason why she should be there, is what I'm saying. And there's millions of others like that.
1: Yeah. And the fact too, that that when people are actually coerced into the labor market, when they Mm -hmm. would prefer not to be, you know, we can, at the one hand, we blame them. Oh, they're like, they're lazy if they're not choosing to work. But there's, right. but the other hand too, it's like that affects wages, you know? So yeah. it, it should be, it's, it's up to the, it's the onus of the employer to actually make the work attractive. You know, yeah. you, you shouldn't be able to That's get a good point. people to do your jobs because you're offering, you know, poverty wages. You know, people should actually be able to refuse that. And the more people who can refuse that, that pushes mm-hmm. up on wages. And that means that someone who, you know, is, let's say, you know, I'm worried about someone not working because I am. it's like well if they choose not to work then i'm doing work that's more valuable and so i can actually see an increase in pay because of them not working you know so it's a lot of what we're seeing in the labor market is because people lack that bargaining power
0: right And you're debunking right now, just by saying what you're saying, you're debunking a lot of myths out there that are used to, as a scare tactic, uh, you know, against UBI and even other, uh, you know, other socialist programs. So, um,
1: no, it's just, it it really does come down to power. And, and I I would argue that that's why we don't already have it. In fact, if you go back to the Senate, not passing the guaranteed income under Nixon, uh, Russell Mm -hmm. Long was the chair of the Senate finance committee. And he was worried, and this was a quote too, that who will press my shirts? And so he Hmm. was concerned too, that if people had that guaranteed income, then he would not be able to get people to do what he wanted to for cheap. And there was also an element of racism in there too. He was from, you he was a Southern Louisiana Democrat actually. Uh, But his concern was also that, that African-Americans would be able to refuse to iron their shirts, you know, it wasn't only about anybody in general, but like he mm. was, you know, it's a very, there's a lot of racism in this lack of power among people. Um, you know, we have to actually provide that power, we have to uh, guarantee that. And I think that, yeah. that the, the fact that we have refused to do
0: that is, is,
1: a, is a big part of all these problems that still exist today.
0: Right, man. That that's so mind blowing to me to think of how pervasive racism is in this country in the basic systems. I mean, we can go on about that, but I'll I'll, I'll switch away from that just really quick um, yeah. as we're getting closer to running out of time here. I, I saw and I read in HuffPost your. Um, article there where you titled it, Stop Teaching Students What to Think, mm-hmm. Teach Them How to Think, mentioning, you know, uh, how education must be reorient, reoriented accordingly. So, I'm going to just um, say two uh, two quotes from there mm-hmm. and want to get, uh, you know, your thoughts or just further elaboration, if that's cool uh, with mm-hmm. you. Yeah. So, one thing that, that really stuck out, you mentioned there, um, memorization of facts is pointless in a world where everyone carries around the entire knowledge base of the human species on their person. Yeah. Love that. Speak more to that.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, we're in this environment where there's just no point in, in, in memorizing things anymore. The problem is not that we aren't able to find what we need to find. The problem is that there is just a massive amount of stuff out there to find and like i would argue that this is what we're seeing too with QAnon, and so people who are who are believing in like this QAnon stuff then they consider it research you know they're they're finding <laughs> they're researching they're independently researching they're going down their rabbit holes and right. when you're looking for something you can find it and so right. the the trick now is to actually help people to ask the right questions and to determine what is information that is actually valid and not valid. Uh, You know, everyone needs to be able to have a strong understanding of the scientific method and how to be able to, to um, you know, like Carl Sagan put together what he called the baloney detection kit, you know, and we need to be able to detect baloney. uh, And that's something that, that should be, um, really taught in schools so that you know it's not you're mm-hmm. memorizing stuff because again that's not the issue you have to be able right. to find stuff and figure out what it is the stuff that you should be installing in your brain and the stuff mm-hmm. that you should be saying no that's bad that doesn't make any sense that's a lie that's false it's nonsense and you'd be able to be able to separate that out so yeah so critical thinking is is a is a of utter importance right now and aside from critical thinking like you have to teach curiosity too um you know you this is something that i think schools traditionally are are pretty bad at where they're teaching answers you know so Mm -hmm. um, you're taught that that there was this question and then someone solved it and now here's the answer and so you kind of come out (laughs) of school thinking like what is there to do you know everything's been solved um instead of like teaching these questions in teaching what it is that we don't know. And, you know, we know this, but because of knowing this, now there's this that we don't know. And this is really interesting because we don't know it. And then you can start to teach questions and and then there's kind of a celebration of what we don't know. And and I think Mm -hmm. there's almost a concern in in society and teaching, you know, that if we teach people that there's stuff that, that are question marks, then that's somehow like a bad thing. But I think we need to be, like as a society, much more comfortable and embrace those question marks because that's what makes things really interesting is that there are all these question marks. There are all these things that we don't know and that we can actually mm. pursue them and, and use the scientific method to actually learn more about the way the world works and um, you know, determine our own lives in in, in our own paths um, to, to find, you know, our own like exploration of what life is. You know, it's just, it's kind of, we need to focus more on that open-ended kind of thing Uh because, you know, again, too, this way that we've been teaching is oriented a lot better around the old ways of working when, you know, you did clock into a factory and, you know, it, it made a lot of sense for, you know, following this eight hour, you know, day and, you know, doing like one thing over and over and over again, you're not really like engaging like your whole mind and and everything. Um, As we go into the future and and technology is able to do more and more stuff, it's able to do all of those things that are repetitive and it's even able to do things that is not repetitive through AI. And so what technology can't do, is the stuff that humans are best suited to doing. And that's what we should be embracing. And and that's the creative um, mind of humanity and it's our collaboration abilities. So again, those are key components too, is that in school we should be teaching creativity and we should be teaching collaboration, like how it is that you can work together um, to use these tools uh, to actually create more together that you couldn't do otherwise, and um, yeah. also to also say that in order for education too to even work, is that you need like solid home environments. You know, you, your parents, you do better as a student if your parents are experiencing less stress. You know, if your if your parents have um you know there's less fighting between them there's and there's more time to work with kids so that there's more adult parent or more parent-child interactions at the home because the parent is working you know 30 to 40 hours a week and has a basic income instead of working 60 to 70 hours a week without a basic income and they have no time whatsoever and so it's just you can't have the interaction and the kid goes to school if the kid doesn't if he's not getting enough food, then you know, how do you focus on education? And so it's it's also there's that interaction between economic security and education where if you make sure that every child is not living in poverty and they are instead living in these secure home environments, then all the money that we're putting into school would actually lead to better outcomes in kids coming out of the system. Uh, better educated, and if we improve the system so that we're actually teaching kids curiosity and critical thinking and all these other things that we should be teaching them, then they're much more set up for the actual world that we're living in right now and this future world that we don't know what's going to be like. Um, We just know that it's coming.
0: Right. Well, I'm glad that you mentioned that right there at the end because that actually ties in with the other part that uh, stuck out to me where you mentioned the unconditional basic income, and this is your, the quote there, um, saying that a cash stipend starting everyone above the poverty line each month uh, needs to be a key characteristic of the UBI, needs to be a key characteristic of the future of work. That way as paid work is automated, humans can focus more on all the work that needs to be done in the ways that most engage in them. So you were touching on it a little bit right there, um, You know. But uh, but with that, you know where where were you uh, going with that thought
1: yeah, so that that speaks to um, worker engagement and and I think also to intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation, which are, and those things are tied together uh, so there's a survey that showed that worldwide only fifteen percent of people who are employed are engaged by the work that they 're doing in the u s mm. it's thirty oh, percent wow. <laughs> right now. it was actually higher mm. and it 's gone down just recently. Um, Uh, Through the crisis, and so Mm. yeah, most people are not engaged by the work that they're doing, and the question is, of course, well, you know, why? And so Mm. a lot of this is why you're supposed to be engaged in something where all you're doing it for is a paycheck, you know? Right. Some people are very fortunate that they're able to have jobs that they really enjoy, that they derive some meaning from it, Um, Mm -hmm. and but they're in, in the they're in the minority the majority of people are are just treating it as a paycheck they're not interested um what's interesting too is there's uh, there's psychological studies that show by just introducing the option to refuse in a task then you increase engagement in the task um just as a quick survey of that of um, one of these experiments is that you um you, you leave some people in a room and you say do this task or do this task, and then we'll come back and check on you later. And they work on it on average, um, it was five minutes. And then you do another group and you do, okay, this task or this task, same tasks, or you can just sit in the room and do nothing if you want, and then we'll come back later. So Hmm. that group with the option to do nothing actually spent seven minutes on average per task instead of five. And so the only difference was that they were allowed the option to not do it. So I think that's part of the problem too, is that by again, not providing people the option to refuse to work in, in this kind of distrust and belief that people won't do anything, then you actually Mm -hmm. decrease the incentive to do this because they feel forced into it. They're not interested. And so if you enable people that, and you actually enable people with this floor and this, you know, boots to pull yourself up by, by your bootstraps, mm-hmm. but then you can right. choose the work that you want to do. You can start your own business. You can, you know, become an artist. You can pursue unpaid work. You know, you can actually do unpaid care work. You can do volunteering in your community. You know, these kinds of forms of work that are entirely unpaid. And the only way you're able to do them is if you can afford to do them through some other way. Right. So if we actually enable all of that, then I think that we could create a culture where a lot more people are engaged by what they're doing and when people are a lot more engaged by what they're doing i also argue the quality improves you know like imagine uh, what's who's going to make a better sandwich for you you know is the better sandwich going to be made by if you hold a gun to someone's head and say make me a sandwich <laughs> or is it going to be the person who like believes that he is like the sandwich master and yes. creates the best sandwich in the world and wants to like, wants to show off that he has the ability to right. like, possibly, you know, bringing you to climax with his sandwich. <laughs> <So> <laughs> what's, what's the better option? You know, so like All enable right, right. The people gun to pursue, yeah. Enable people to pursue <laughs> what it is that they're most are pursuing. And you're going to see a lot, uh, a lot more amazing stuff out there.
0: You, once again, you bring up some such great points on that. To go back and out when you were mentioning about the the thoughts and for us to think critically, mm-hmm. I do have I do have a question on this. I want to see what you think about it. Sure. Um, does does the blind faith teachings of religion also uh, add to that which what that which what you were saying of the fact that we don't we just you know, we kind of believe what we're told and we think the answers are out there and everything. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on that? (laughs) Or is that something that you'd rather not touch?
1: Sorry. Could you, could you repeat that again?
0: Yeah, no problem. I said, um, I'm wondering if the kind of the blind faith teachings of religion that a lot of people get, you know, uh, indoctrinated or learn as Hmm. they're younger. Do you think that that also adds to what you were saying about, um, you know, us not, uh, you know, as we get older and we become independent to not necessarily think critically, or is that something that just yeah. is crazy that I just thought of while you were, while you were well, talking? <laughs>
1: no, it's, it's interesting to, to think about kind of, um, what religion does. And, um, and I, I, I would say that there's some interesting things about it through, uh, studies of like stress, where you know, stress chronic stress results in people trying to gain some kind of control over their lives, and there's a lot of ways of gaining control over your life or feeling that you're gaining control. So some of those ways are worse than others, like they can be bullying behavior, uh, xenophobia, um, this kind of of you know hierarchical push someone down so that you feel lifted up, that you have control. Um, when it comes to religion that like, you feel that you have the answers. Um, that's kind of like with QAnon too, is you, you feel that you've right. covered something that makes sense and is true, and, and you're the one who gets, other people don't. Um, when it comes to religion, it's the same thing, where you feel that God exists, God offers you some kind of control. If you pray to God, it'll help. And so it's there's that element. And um, I, I think that when it comes to um, unconditional security, that, that can actually um aid in a way of of people not looking for various reasons of, of to claim control um over their lives but also it's that religion really helps with community and you know a lot of it the value of is it going to church and and having those social bonds and so, again, um, a basic income also helps with making sure that people can engage in those. So they can engage in community via churches, but also they can engage more with their families and friends and, um, you know, communities in general. Um, so I guess that's what I would say about that.
0: Okay, great. So, yeah, so it all ties in with, you know, with the ability to uh, of community and togetherness yeah. and having more of a robust social and economic thing so look um unfortunately we, were, we just ran out of time i mean i you know i would obviously have so much more to say yeah. you mentioned ending gerrymandering um, getting away from gdp um if, if if you had a second you know um i would like to get the answer to that getting away from gdp um but maybe we'll have to fix that for next time yeah, unless we'll there's something you know really quick that you'd like to say about that
1: um no i would just
0: say that uh, that we okay yeah and it's breaking up right now
1: Okay, I would just say that-
0: that You're back, you're back.
1: (laughs) That it is important to look at what is the purpose of all this? You know, is the purpose earning money and just more money and spending that money? You know, Mm -hmm. is that what life is all about? Well, no. And, you know, whatever this economy that we've created, the economy should work for us. It should be about human well-being and human flourishing. And so GDP is not about that. GDP is just looking at- you know, the the value creation um, based on what we consider to be valuable based on what we're paying for it. You know, like GDP doesn't include the unpaid care work going on. It doesn't include all kinds of things. And it only looks at the economics aspect. But we should look beyond that and actually try to create a society that is about well-being instead of just these like stock market or GDP or anything.
0: Excellent. That's perfect. And probably a great way to wrap that up. So Scott Santens, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Um, How can people get a hold of you or um, check out more of your work? Where can they go?
1: Yeah, you can find my uh, UBI FAQ at scottsantons.com. Uh, and yeah, also head to my Twitter and uh, uh, check out my pinned tweet thread.
0: Awesome. Been a, It's been a huge pleasure, Scott. Thank you so much then. Thank you. Take care. Have a good one. You as well. Bye-bye. Thank Bye. you. Hey guys, thank you so much for watching this video. If you liked it, please tap the like, hit the bell, subscribe to us and support us on Patreon if you wanna join the cause to help us get corrupt bribes out of our nation's news media. Thank you so much for watching and remember, this is your revolution.